Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? Pretty good, I think, overall. Good. Awesome. Yourself? Fantastic. Nice. Yeah. The world outside is awful, but, you know, we're doing alright here. Yeah, um, COVID is... Back in action. <laughs> With a vengeance. Uh, here uh, in Alberta. Yeah, it's, it's, we've risen in like our case numbers and our, you know, number of people in ICU and our number of, like all of our numbers have shot up by leaps and bounds within like the last month. Almost like, the, just like the last two weeks, really. Oh, oh yeah. Like it's. Like it wasn't like this, it wasn't even near this when we left for vacation. That's right. Yeah. It's. Coming out of Thanksgiving, Canadian Thanksgiving, coming out of Halloween and, and all of this, and, and a lot of other reasons, I'm sure, as well. And the government's not doing its best job reacting to the changed situation. Uh, you know, we had numbers going up over summer when we reopened, but, like, it was sort of a steady, controlled pace. Our recoveries were keeping stride with our new cases, kind of canceling each other out. And, like, it felt, you know, yes, it's going up, but it's under control. And now... It's out of control. Oh, yeah, it's... And it's... the provincial government here in Alberta are a bunch of dickheads that don't know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah, there's been a lot of reluctance to, like, start lockdowns again, and a lot of reluctance to respond to anything. So there's a lot of, like, finger-wagging from the government, like, hey, don't Personal go to parties. Don't do family get-togethers. Like, you know, don't don't go out, but there's nothing really that they're, like, concretely doing. And we're up to, like, a thousand cases a day yep. now in Alberta. And, I mean, depending on where you're listening to this from, that might not sound like anything. But with our population, it's one in 400 Albertans. Yeah, and we were not having numbers anywhere like this. Like, not in March, even. No. You know, like, we were seeing through the summer and stuff more like... A hundred cases a day. Yeah. You know, so it's, things have gotten out of control. But we're fine. We're fine. And with that, let's move on to what we're watching this week. I don't know how else to transition, Ben. That's very true. That's fair. Um, Uh, What are we watching this week? This week, Sarah, we are back in Japan. And we're watching the follow-up to Gojira in many ways. Uh, Not directly in that it's not the sequel to Gojira, but, um, well, anyways, we're watching (laughs) Jujin Yuki Otoko from 1955, and that title translates literally as Beastman Snowman. Okay. The thing to understand about this movie's production is that the success of Godzilla caught Toho off guard. I mean, everybody at Toho was hoping it would be a success, given that they pumped a lot of money into it, and it was kind of a gamble and an experiment. But they weren't expecting it to be as great of a success as it was. If people would like to hear more about our episode on Gojira, you can listen to episode 172. But, uh, you know, being a corporate entity, 
Toho was quick to capitalize on the success of Godzilla by quickly greenlighting a sequel, Gojira no Gyakushu, uh, also known as Godzilla Raids Again. However, that sequel would be helmed by director Motoyoshi Oda, not the original's director Ishiro Honda, and that's because Honda was already committed to the production of this film, which was already like greenlit and planned and intended to happen you know, before Godzilla came out. So, Gojira no Gyakushu has Eiji Tsuburaya doing the special effects, and it has some writers and, and some other people, but most of, like, the main team, the A-team, who made Gojira, was making this film instead of the sequel. So that's why I say it's the follow-up. Okay. The production of this film was inspired by the same early 1950s Yeti footprint photos and worldwide Yeti... Um, Fanfare? Hysteria <laughs> that had uh, inspired the movie The Snow Creature uh, the year earlier, which we've also seen on the show. It is a movie. Do you want to talk a bit about that early Yeti stuff and maybe give our audience a brief recap of where we are vis-a-vis -vis Yeti? <laughs> sure. Uh, so there is another way that the snow creature relates to Gojira. Oh, yeah. In that it was episode 173, mm. the episode following our episode on Gojira. Um, as Ben said, it's from 1954. Directed by W. Lee Wilder, not to be confused with Billy Wilder, though he would like you to confuse yes. the two. Um, and it is currently ranked number 169 out of... 170 films. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. So we can only go up from here, you know? Yeah. The word Yeti comes from the Tibet word Yate, which would translate to Rocky Bear or Man Bear. Mm. As I kind of explain in episode 173, um, uh, there's, there's quite a few ideas of, like, missing link creatures that are, like, partly ape-ish and human-ish, like the Yeti. Uh, then there's, like, Sasquatch and Bigfoot. Um, but the Yeti is specifically in the area of, like, the Himalayans. Mm -hmm. Before Buddhism was established as a religion in the Himalayas, in Tibet, the Yeti was central to some tribes' beliefs, for example, the Lepcha people uh, worshipped him as king of the hunt and as like a glacier being. Okay. As far as uh, growing interest outside of Tibet, um, specifically with Westerners, uh, that interest really started going up once people started to try to climb Mount Everest. Most of the sightings of the Yeti were more about like, oh, I saw footprints one time. Yeah. Um, the earliest... Western recorded account is from 1832, but photos weren't captured until 1937 by Frank Smythe, and then later in 1951 by Eric Shipton, who got, like, better photos. Uh, and these, because they were better photos, they were taken with, like, a um, an ice pick next to it so you could get a feel for the size. These photos were kind of taken as, like, the best piece of evidence of, like, determining whether... The Yeti is real. Yeah, and Shipton was, like, not a 
untrustworthy source either. Like, he was like a legit mountaineer, not like some weird, you know, Daily Mail photographer. (laughs) He wasn't like from BuzzFeed Unsolved. (laughs) For people contesting these images, the most common theory is that these are normal footprints, but due to the wind and erosion of these footprints, they kind of appear to be made by a larger creature. Yeah, due to the way that, like, the snow can melt and then, like, freeze again, you know, because of the way the temperature is up there, that, like, it melted to, like, a larger size and then froze, and so it looks bigger and this kind of thing. Yeah, Yeah. but especially with the way that the wind affects footprints here. Mm. The Yeti gained further, I'll say, legitimacy... But the idea of the Yeti became more, like, mainstream. Mm. Um, When, in 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and guide Tenzig Norgay um, climbed Mount Everest, the first team to do so, um, and in their interviews were like, yeah, we saw Yeti footprints too. So these guys were in the news for having achieved climbing this mountain, And then the fact that they are also going like, yeah, those footprints were real, Mm -hmm. um, made a lot of people go like, oh, so the Yeti must be real. Yeah, like if Neil Armstrong was like, yeah, I totally saw little green men on the moon, like it would give a lot of credence to the idea. (laughs) You know, he's been there. Right. (laughs) Hillary and Norgay would head back to Everest in the 60s to actually try to find the Yeti, but their claims did stir up enough like interest in the Yeti that in 1954, the Daily Mail funded an expedition to find the Yeti. Um, But the most evidence that has ever been kind of gathered have been rumored sightings, footprints, and um, I go into more detail in episode 173, but a a scalp that is rumored to be from the Yeti. Mm -hmm. Um, um, But after analysis, it was clear, like, this isn't human hair, but it's, like, probably a bear. Right, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting that, like, in Tibet, idea of the Yeti was kind of just, like, an accepted thing, and then it kind of faded more into rumors once Buddhism was kind of established there. Um, which makes me wonder, you know, would Japan and, like, East Asia have been aware of these beliefs of the Yeti or rumors of the Yeti, before Westerners even got around there, you know? So, the best I can figure, the Japanese interest in the Yeti, or at least the Japanese film industry interest (laughs) in the Yeti, really comes from the exact same place as the American interest Uh, in the the, Yeti. Mainly in the 50s. Yeah, with these footprints. Like, we even see the footprints of the Yeti name-dropped in Gojira as, like, part of Professor Yamane's, like, evidence for why Godzilla should exist. And I think it's really telling like how mainstream and accepted and excited people were about the existence of the Yeti in the 1950s that like a movie that's about, you know, a 50 meter tall atomic dinosaur uses Yetis as like justification for why Godzilla should be real. Like, you know what I mean? Like cuz the whole thing is like, well, well, we've seen Yeti footprints in the Himalayas, so, like, why not uh, yeah. a, a big dinosaur underwater? 
and and the modern conception of the Yeti, because it fell into this idea of like, oh, what if it's like a missing link thing? The modern Yeti, I think, is more of like an ape man. You know, it's the the polar bear to Sasquatch's grizzly bear, but it's like an ape man thing. And uh, that's certainly what we see in the movie The Snow Creature. That's what we're going to see in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, The Japanese interest really is coming out of the Westerner interest and from the same places and from the same publicity. It's the photographs of the footprints that's got everybody, everybody talking. This film's story was written by Shigeru Kayama, the science fiction author who had written the story for Godzilla and would also write the story for Godzilla Raids Again. And... It's significant that Kayama wrote this story because his early short story fiction that was published, uh, he wrote a number of stories about tales of the Orang Pindak from Indonesia. And the Orang Pindak is like a pygmy ape cryptid in Indonesia. Uh, The name means like short people. Okay. Um, And it's, you know, similar in origin to the word orangutan which means um, people of the forest. So the Orang Pendak is supposed to be this, like, again, another kind of, like, missing link creature. Like, they're short like pygmies, but they have hair all over their bodies like apes and this kind of thing. And in Kayama's short stories, he wrote about them masquerading as humans and, like, mating with human women. Masquerading, like, a bunch of them in a trench coat? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Um, I've not read these stories. But Kayama was interested in exploring in his fiction kind of like the edge cases of humanity, like what makes a creature more or less human, and he brings that interest to his script for Jujinyuki Otoko. The film's screenplay was written by Takeo Murata, who had co-written the screenplay for Godzilla with Honda, and was also co-writing Godzilla Raids again at the same time that he was writing this movie. The original title for the movie was Snowman of the Alps, or at least that was the original intended English title. Uh, The film is not set in Tibet, in the Himalayas. It's set in what is sometimes called the Japanese Alps by closer to, like, Tokyo in in Honshu. Would this be, like, where Mount Fuji is? No, Mount Fuji, like, isn't in a mountain range. That's part of why it has, like, very, you know... Famous slope, yeah. Yeah, the very famous silhouette where you just see Mount Fuji and nothing else for miles around. Okay. Yeah. Much as Gojira had been codenamed Project G during production, uh, so was this film codenamed Project S. A number of actors from Gojira uh, return for Jujin Yuki Otoko. Akira Takarada, who played Ogata in Gojira, uh, is once again our heroic lead. And once again, his love interest is played by Momoko Kochi, who had played Emiko in Gojira. Actress Akami Nagishi plays a key supporting role in this film uh, as one of the women of the village that they go to. Uh, Following this movie, she would appear in multiple Kurosawa films, uh, I Live in Fear in 1955, the Lower Depths in 1957, Red Beard in 1965, Dodes Garden in 1970, and she also had a memorable role as the lead native dancing girl in 1962's King Kong vs. Godzilla. Okay. Actor Nobuo Nakamura, who plays, like, the professor in this movie, <laughs> sure. 
was a frequent supporting player in the films of Yasujiro Ozu and Akira Kurosawa. Uh, he appeared in Ikiru in 1952, Tokyo Story in 1953, I Live in Fear, Throne of Blood in 1957, The Bad Sleep Well in 1960, High and Low 1963, and he also appeared in the tokusatsu films Dogara the Space Monster in 1964, Frankenstein vs. Baragon in 1965, and War of the Gargantuas in 1966. Amazing. Another familiar face for fans of Japanese cinema is 68-year-old actor Kokuten Kodo, who had begun acting on stage at age 14 in 1901 uh, before moving to film in 1923. Uh, But he appeared as a character actor, often as, like, old men, wise monks, and village elders in films like Sanshiro Sugata, Parts 1 and 2, No Regrets for Our Youth, Snow Trail, Stray Dog, Scandal, The Idiot, Seven Samurai, Godzilla, Samurai Parts 2 and 3, I Live in Fear, Throne of Blood, and The Hidden Fortress, before passing away in 1960 at the age of 72. Basically, if you're watching a Japanese movie from the, like, the 40s or 50s, and there's like an old, wise priest or village elder, it's this guy. <laughs> so, the film's location shooting was done first in order to give Eiji Tsuburaya's special effects team the time they needed to create the suits for the kaiju in this movie. And the monsters in this movie are very much kaiju, but not daikaiju. Um, Gojira is daikaiju because he's brug. Yes. And kaiju's just like like the creature from Frankenstein. Sure, yeah. A kaiju is a monster. Um, specifically a beast monster. Like, not... Oh, a, so like Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, not like a ghost or or a, or a vampire or something. Those aren't kaiju. But yeah, the Creature from the Black Lagoon might be a kaiju. Uh, in the traditional Japanese use of the word, over here in the West, we've kind of... We kind of use kaiju to mean daikaiju. These monsters here, because they are, are snowmen, uh, or beastmen snowmen, as the title has it, um, are just like seven-foot-tall ape men, right? The snowman in the film would represent a substantial leap forward in technique from the suit used in Godzilla, largely thanks to the efforts of suit maker Fuminori Ohashi. Fuminori Ohashi was born Yukitoshi Ohashi in 1915, and he entered the film industry in 1935, inspired, like Tsuburaya was, by the release of King Kong. He worked for Shochiku Studios at first um, as an assistant director, a cameraman, also as a, like, bit part sort of background extra actor. Filling in when they needed someone to be in the background. Sure, uh, under the name Ryonosuke Kabayama. In 1938, he created an ape suit for a lost film, called King Kong in Edo, which told the story of an ape man in feudal Japan. (laughs) Uh, He's not like a giant. He's just like an ape man that's like the pet of like a Japanese nobleman that like gets on the loose and ends up like teaming up with like the shogun's daughter who's run away from home for some reason. Um, it's, It's That's like Mighty Joe Young. Right. Uh, The movie's lost, so it's kind of hard to say. Yeah. But um, under 
the stage name Rinosuke Kabayama, Ohashi also acted as the ape man in the movie, in addition to making the suit. After the war, Ohashi switched to Toho, changing his professional name to Fuminori Ohashi, and changing his stage name to Sanshiro Sagata. You know, like the Kurosawa movie. <laughs> um, as an actor, under the name Sanshiro Sagata, he would appear in bit parts in many Kurosawa films, uh, while continuing to work in a technical capacity as Ohashi. When the original Godzilla suit was being made, if you recall our episode on Godzilla, that first suit turned out to be so heavy that it couldn't even be worn in one piece. They had to, like, cut it in half and use it as, like, a top half and then, like, with suspenders, the bottom half. Um, and it was Ohashi who suggested the use of a more lightweight synthetic material for the construction of the second suit, which would end up being sculpted by Ohashi. Recalling Ohashi's earlier ape suit, Tsuburaya put Ohashi in charge of creating the snowman for Jujinyuki Otoko. Ahashi made several different headpieces for the suit to express different emotions. He also molded the mask to the actor's own face so that it would fit them more closely and created a mask where the creature's eyes would be the actor's own eyes, uh, allowing it to be more expressive, which was a real rarity in Toho monster design. Uh, Ohashi was able to do all of this by working very closely with the tall actor who was chosen to perform as the snowman, which is to say himself as Sanshiro Sagata. <laughs> Ohashi is not as well known today as Tsuburaya for a variety of reasons. One of them is the rareness of this film, which is undoubtedly his best work, but when no one can see your best work, it's hard for you to build on that. The other is that Ohashi desired creative freedom, so he left Toho in the early 60s to go solo as a special effects artist. In 1963, he co-created the Daikaiju television series Aegon the Atomic Dragon with Toho screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa, who wrote many of Toho's tokusatsu films in the 1960s. Aegon was not a Toho production, but Aegon looks a lot like Godzilla. He's a bipedal T-Rex-looking dinosaur with, like, spike ridges who breathes fire. So, four episodes of the TV show were shot in 1964 before Toho slapped the two men with a lawsuit Yeah, and prevented the show from being aired. Yeah. Ultimately, Ohashi was able to cast doubt on Toho's lawsuit by asserting his role in Godzilla's creation to begin with, and thus kind of muddying the waters over, like, who had the rights to that kind of design and idea. Um, so, the lawsuit was thrown out, and the show's four episodes aired in 1968, finally. You know, just the four that they had made before the lawsuit came on. And that was it, and made four years later. So, you know, by then the damage had kind of been done yeah. uh, to his career. And he passed away in relative obscurity in 1989 at the age of 74. So when Honda returned from location shooting to the studio to work with the monster, 
he found that Tsuburaya was hard at work on the effect sequences for Godzilla Raids again, which had a lot of effect sequences that needed to be created very quickly for that film. So work on Jujin Yuki Otoko was put on hold, during which time Honda completed his next film, uh, a <laughs> drama called Oensan. Finally, shooting resumed and was completed in July of 1955, and the film was released on August 14th, 1955. The film's score is by Masaru Sato, who was a pupil of Fumio Hayasaka, who was Kurosawa's regular composer. Hayasaka had died unexpectedly in 1955, so Toho brought Sato in to complete his final score for Kurosawa's I Live in Fear. And after that, they brought Sato on to payroll. His first wholly original score was the one he wrote for Godzilla Raids Again. Sato would often be like the number two man for tokusatsu scores at Toho after Akira Ifukube. Uh, he composed the scores for the H-Man in 1958, Ebra Horror of the Deep in 1966, Son of Godzilla in 1967, and Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla in 1974. However, much more profitable for Sato was his continuing collaboration with Kurosawa. Uh, he composed Throne of Blood, The Lower Depths, The Hidden Fortress, The Bad Sleep Well, Yojimbo, Sanjuro, High and Low, and Redbeard. The success of the Americanization of Godzilla led Distributors Corporation of America to purchase the American rights for this film. The American version was titled Half Human. It is half an hour shorter than the Japanese version, and it has a large number of new American scenes added, which means that less than an hour of the Japanese footage of the original is in the American version. Oh, shit. Because, like, Godzilla, they had kept most of it, but added Raymond Burr to help give, like, context. That's right. A similar thing was done here, but to a much less respectful degree. The American footage consists of our old pal John Carradine oh. as an American scientist in his lab uh, narrating the events of the film to his American colleagues as an incident which occurred to a friend of his that he learned about while serving in an exchange program in Japan. <laughs> so unlike... Godzilla, they don't even edit Carradine into the story of the movie. It's just him reciting the story of some people that didn't happen to him to some other American people. Yeah. Um, he adds a lot of unnecessary explanations and exposition. The movie constantly is cutting back to his lab and these three other old white guys who he's talking to as he explains what the theory of evolution is and explains, you know, every little detail of, of the movie. Uh, at one point, he even shows his colleagues a snowman carcass that has been stored for dissection, which was courtesy of Toho shipping the suits over to America for the American shoot. Okay. Half Human is considered to be a considerable dumbing down of Jujin Yuki Otoko and to not be very respectful to its Japanese creators, who are only acknowledged in the end credits of the film. Uh, there's like a credit that comes up that says, Special thanks to the people of Japan for the authenticity of this production. They don't even list people by name? They do after that title card. 
Um, but it's like the very end of the movie. There Jeez. are not there are no Japanese names in the opening credits, which portray the film as a wholly American production, you know, with a directed by credit for the guy who came in for like the one day to shoot Carradine in a room talking to three other people. It also, in Carradine's, like, narration of the movie's story, uh, he only gives one of the Japanese characters a name, and it's not his name in the Japanese version. It's just, like, a different Japanese name. The movie also ditches Masaru Sato's score and replaces it with stock music. It's it's a real piece of work. Almost a bastardization, would you say? Yeah, I would say so. Yet... This is the only version of this movie legally available on home video anywhere in the world. Toho never re-released Jujin Yuki Otoko, and indeed pulled it from circulation. The common reason for this that you will see given is that the movie was banned for its depiction of the Ainu, the indigenous peoples of northern Japan. Uh, But this is not the case. For one thing, the movie was not banned. Uh, The Japanese word is fuin, which means seal, and the seal was put on the movie by Toho. It was voluntarily withdrawn. It has been voluntarily kept out of circulation. It has been voluntarily uh, prevented from appearing on home video. It's totally up to Toho, Uh, not like a censor thing. And for another thing, it is not over the depiction of the Ainu. The geography's wrong. The movie's not set in the areas of Japan inhabited by the Ainu. Instead, the film's problems have to do with its depiction of a different minority, and it's something that's a little bit hard for Westerners to understand. So we're going to take a few moments to explain uh, who these people are. They are called the Burakumen. The direct translation of Burakumen is village people. Right. Um, and not YMCA people, <laughs> um, but like people who live in like a rural community. Mm-hmm. But there's much more to the cultural meaning. The Barakumen was historically a caste of people doing what was considered dirty work during the feudal era of Japan. Um, dirty work being... You know, you work at a slaughterhouse, you're a butcher, a tanner, you do executions, um, sewage kind of work. So working with, like, the killing of animals so people can eat the animals, as well as, like, you know, the the dirty work of society that no one really wants to see. Mm -hmm. A lot of what was considered dirty comes from Buddhist ideals, Mm. um, mainly about, like, polluters or defilement In any case, this is like the lowest caste in the social hierarchy. These people are considered untouchables. And while that label is associated with your job, that label became hereditary. I mean, that's what a caste kind of refers to. And the idea changed from that person is doing work that is dirty, therefore that makes that person dirty, and morphed the idea into, that's a dirty person, so they should be doing dirty work. Right, and you can see how that would happen with it being hereditary, because now you're just, like, born to that role, so it creates that feeling of, like... You can't do anything else. You're meant for this. You're meant for this. You are inherently dirty, and therefore will be doing dirty work. Mm -hmm. So you can see how these people 
would start to get ostracized. Like, you're dirty, don't come near me. Definitely not going to, like, marry with your family and things like that. So people who were executioners, tanners, butchers, they tended to live outside of the main city, both because of, like, slaughterhouses are smelly, Mm -hmm. tanneries are smelly, so Mm -hmm. put them out of the normal boundaries of the town. But it also became, like, almost a ghetto where um, the Burakumin would have, like, their own society, basically. Right, like, it's the kind of thing where this started for, like, hygiene reasons, maybe, but then, like, there's a definite social consequence to saying, you people live over here, like, apart from the rest of us. Yeah. It's like a rural ghetto. A rural ghetto, um, no one wants to marry into a Baraku family, so you marry between, like, within that caste, Mm -hmm. um, and the identity of an ostracized, marginalized caste becomes solidified over the years and decades. Yeah. It was never an official caste. Because it's like your caste list. Exactly. But in 1868, during the Meiji Restoration, this is when Japan saw, you know, an opening of their borders um, to Western ideas, um, basically any ideas other than Japanese ideas, um, rapid industrialization, and the abolition of the caste system, including getting rid of the Barakumin status. Mm -hmm. 1868, the government says, um, Barakumin is no longer a caste, you have no status, um, let's just assimilate you. Right. We're all, we're all equal here. We're all equal here. But there's no actual affirmative action or equity work done to actually close the class divide. Mm. And I use class for, a, for lack of a better word, because you have these areas where, you know, the government, the local governments haven't done any work to establish, like, a good standard of living. Um, these people would be stuck in these actual, like, jobs, so they are poverty-stricken. They might be illiterate, and no work is being done to actually, like, actively assimilate them. They're just told, hey, you're equal now, but you're still poverty-stricken. Yeah. You're still a, in a different class than um, everyone else, so you're still easily identifiable as Burakumin. Mm-hmm. And so the discrimination continued. The result of this was also that um, Burakumin at least before, had a monopoly on these roles of butchers, executioners. Well, hopefully <laughs> not in demand yeah. of executioners, you know, but they at least had a monopoly on those jobs. So they would get money that way. Um, with the removal of the caste system, now anyone could be a butcher or a tanner, mm-hmm. um, even if it is considered dirty work, so their poverty worsened. Right. Because no one actually wants to work with a Barakumin, but if I can work with a butcher who is not an actual Barakumin, then I'll go with that butcher instead of the traditional guy. Right, and as you know, other people are allowed to take on their jobs, like, theoretically... They would be able to take on other jobs, but it was not actually done. It, it, it would be illegal to discriminate, but people are still doing it. Yeah. It would also be they would be stuck in a certain level of job, right? Like, they would 
not necessarily have the funding or the literacy to do a job where they could get higher pay, for example. Yeah. They couldn't become doctors because they might not have the base level education to start to learn to do that. Mm-hmm. Sure. By the early 20th century, there were two main movements in terms of understanding the Burakumen, you know, trying to create some kind of equality. One movement was about assimilation, mm-hmm. you know, improve their living standards, teach them how to read, um, very much like, let's bring them into a mainstream society. The other movement was uh, what are called levelers. So this was spearheaded by the National Levelers Association, founded in 1922, which would later become the Buraku Liberation League, um, founded in 1946. So as levelers, the idea is not necessarily just to like say, hey, we're equal now, but also to confront the actual discrimination that they're facing mm. and criticize perpetrators of discrimination. So being able to be a bit more active in being like, hey, you're discriminating against us because of this heritage that's not allowed and pushing against it. Mm-hmm. So one is basically trying to... Sweep it under the rug a little bit and well, just like, say, hey, we're equal. Well, like eliminate the status, right? Where it's like, there is no such thing as Barakaman anymore. Like just, you know, kind of start us back all at zero and work from there and like just have one integrated society and the other's trying to say, like, no, we're a thing and you can't keep mistreating us. Exactly. Right. And the latter at least allows an acknowledgement of the historical and structural systemic discrimination that they've faced. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of challenging of that discrimination or pushing of policies throughout the 50s. Um, you mainly see it coming in the 1960s, where the efforts towards assimilation were mainly projects for improved housing and increased living standards. In 1965, the Cabinet DOA Policy Council stated that the Barakumen were a state responsibility. Mm. So we can't just ignore this. We have to actually engage with this. And some special laws were instigated to say you cannot discriminate against these people, even though this, like, officially cast does not exist, that sort of thing. However, in the 1970s, it was discovered that companies were buying blacklists of who had Bivaku heritage Mm. and therefore would avoid hiring them. Mm -hmm. These lists were based on the family registries that are very common in Japan. Um, They're called koseki. Everyone wants to have their family registered um, so they can trace their heritage, they can show past addresses where they've lived to to kind of show their ancestral birthplaces. Mm -hmm. It's like a thing of pride. But because people do this, it makes it easy for someone who is um, looking for a reason to not hire you to look at your family history and be able to say, oh, you lived in this neighborhood, this neighborhood has traditionally been a Barakuman neighborhood, therefore you must be Barakuman, and I will not hire you. So that's as late as like the 1970s, and this kind of discrimination continues now, there have been a lot of strides for Barakumen to become integrated and accepted in society. You can kind of see this with uh, this politician named Hiromu Nonaka. 
He comes from a Brachman family, but he made his way up the Japanese parliament system, has held many like very notable positions, and in 2001 was kind of ready to take that next step in his political career to become prime minister. Um, however, uh, a lot of people weren't very happy with this, and this is kind of demonstrated by this remark from another politician named Taro Aso, who said, are we really going to let these people take over Japan? Mm-hmm. When referring to Nonaka. Now, this was a remark made in a closed-door meeting, but... Um, Reporters overheard it, but then didn't report it. And these remarks really only came to light, like, several years later. Mm. And people have said that, like, part of the reason why people weren't talking about this remark or, like, even saying, hey, so, like, that's not okay to say, is because it's such a widely held belief. Like, even the reporters uh, were like, oh, well, is it really... Yeah, the discrimination is that widespread, right? And despite those remarks going public, also was Prime Minister of Japan from 2008 to 2009. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the, the guy who said these things became leader for at least a year says something. Mm-hmm. It seems like today, 2020, it's kind of a discrimination that you don't talk about. There have been like news articles and investigations about... Um, like, from, like, the New York Times about what exactly are Brockman, um, where they've interviewed people and they're like, no, I, I can't let anyone know that this is in my family heritage because it would ruin my career, it, w- it would ruin my mm-hmm. romantic prospects. Mm-hmm. So it's still, like, a huge fear, even though they have made strides. Right. It's just, like, one of those things where you make all this effort and you say officially, like, we're going to deal with this and we're going to stamp this out and whatever, but it's like you're fighting against hundreds of years of social programming that said, you know, these people are untouchables. You cannot deal with these people. They are to be, like, held apart. And, you know, we've had, like, 160 years of hey, they're supposed to be just like you and me, and it's it's hard for the Japanese who are, you know... Very entrenched in certain traditions. Yeah, to let go of that feeling. So the reason we bring up the Barakumen is the Buraku Liberation League uh, spoke out against this movie. That's right. Um, as saying, hey, you cannot represent Barakumen in this way. You know, I said earlier that most Westerners mistake the discrimination in this movie for being against the Ainu people. And part of that comes down to Westerners, like, not understanding minorities that can exist that aren't, like, ethnic minorities, right? But it also comes down to, like, what the people are portrayed as. In this film, you know, a bunch of Japanese people from the city go into the mountains And part of the plot is discovering a village of people living a, like, rural, primitive existence in a village in the mountains. You know, kind of a forgotten people, you know, eking out a a near-savage kind of lifestyle. So more than just, like, backwater hicks. Yeah, more like, you know, the kind of 
superstitious villagers that you would expect to find in like a movie set in like the jungles and this kind of thing, right? Uh, but they're they're people who live in the mountains, so they're like more of a a northerner snow people kind of thing. The word that is used to refer to the village that is found is Buraku. Mm-hmm. It's it's translated as village in the subtitles, um, but that's the word they're using for the village here. This is meant to be a Buraku village that is like so cut off from society that it's become like forgotten by modern Japan. And the Buraku men depicted are not only living this very primitive superstitious existence, but earlier I mentioned to you like what this movie's kind of about in terms of its themes, which is this kind of interbreeding with the snowmen. And so many of the Baraka men are depicted as like mutants and as like question, like the movie deals with questions of like what is and isn't human, right? Are the snow creatures human or are the Baraka men human because they've interbred? Like where does the line get drawn? And that's a real issue when like a big part of the nature of being untouchable and being, like, born to do dirty work is, like, this dehumanization. Yeah. It's probably very likely that the filmmakers did not intend any offense. You know, all of the people who made this movie have pretty superb records with regards to, like, humanism. And additionally, the villagers are depicted sympathetically, and the snow creature is depicted sympathetically, it's it's likely that no offense was really intended here and that it's more a case of like no one was thinking how this would come across than any kind of intent to further stereotypes of Burakaman. Yeah, not intentionally malicious, but that also does kind of speak to the way that the discrimination was like not even like front of mind. Yeah, it's like almost subconscious, where it's just so ingrained that you don't even think about it. Yeah. So yeah, the Baraku Liberation League protested the depiction of half-human mutant villagers living in the mountains in poverty as perpetuating stereotypes of the Barakaman. So, Toho withdrew the film. And even though it's difficult for us from a Western perspective to kind of like see where the problems lie and understand... Um, The fact that a company like Toho has willingly decided not to make money on this movie ever again, I think really speaks to the seriousness of the concerns and how seriously the grievances were taken and how valid those concerns were, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, comparing that to, gosh, the reaction of, like, Western media companies when problematic portrayals are pointed out and it's nothing but like a bunch of excuses and half apologies like i think it's it's worth even if we don't understand it looking at toho's reaction and saying okay there there's something here for sure yeah so did that pulling of this film and sealing away of this film affect ishua honda's career no in- not no? at all. Interesting. Because I would expect it to be similar to the effect of Murders in the Room Morgue. Yeah, it was really seen to be... Like, Toho's reaction was basically a, oops, my bad. Like, Honda wasn't blamed. No one making this movie was blamed. Their careers went on uninterrupted. 
because it was really seen as being like, oh, we made a mistake. Like, this wasn't on purpose. You know, no one thought like, oh, a Shira Honda bad person doesn't deserve to work again. It was, oh, we didn't realize, so sorry for the offense, we'll withdraw the film. And to the extent where um, Toho doesn't officially acknowledge this movie exists or that they ever made it, it's not present in histories of the studio, it's not discussed on like any of their websites, they do not acknowledge that they released it or that it ever existed. Um, this movie just never happened as far as Toho's concerned. Okay. In the 1990s, there was talk of lifting this seal for a home video release. Toho ultimately decided against it, but a VHS transfer of the movie was created in preparation for a potential release. And this VHS transfer leaked to the gray market, as it were. <laughs> um, it is referred to as a gray market copy because the film is otherwise not available in any form. So you're not exactly like stealing, quote-unquote, in terms of taking revenue away from Toho because they're not offering it for sale. Yeah. So it's not exactly like black market. Morally gray yes. is why it's gray market. Ex exactly. Um, it is in this form that the film can be seen in its original Japanese version. This is basically the only way you can see the original Japanese version other than the odd film festival screening that it still gets in Japan solely as part of things like... Um, historical retrospectives like the last time it was screened in japan was in 2001 as part of a retrospective festival honoring the life work of eiji subaraya and so it's been screened in japan in like very specific context historical cultural context where it's being presented in a very curated way okay well folks hopefully you can watch along you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss jujin yuki otoko from 1955, directed by Ishiro Honda. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Jujin Yuki Otoko from 1955, directed by Ishiro Honda. Sarah, what did you think? It was a neat watch. Uh-huh. I have seen this movie many times. Uh, sure, yes. The, these plot beats. This is my first time actually seeing this movie, just yes. to be clear. Wait, have you seen this before? No. What did you think? Um, I'll agree with you on, like, the plot beats thing, for sure. We've seen this story. I really liked this, but I didn't like it as much as I th thought I was going to. I really liked it, but it wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. There's a certain tendency, I think, with movies like this that, like, the reputation precedes them. Yeah, or that, like, you know, it's difficult to see them. They have, like, a ban of some kind on them, you know, or, you know, people haven't seen them in years and this kind of thing, where I feel like you build them up in your mind because it's like, well, they have to be worth the fact that, like, you couldn't see them or that they were difficult to, to see. And 
I don't think this movie is quite the lost masterpiece that some of its hype builds it up to be, but I do think it's very good, and I do think it's a shame that it is unavailable to be seen in its proper form. I think you liked this movie more than I did. I'm getting that impression, yeah. Um, Well, let's talk about the story, which, as you noted, is made up of very familiar beats. So, we open with this mountaineer expedition heading home, and they are waiting at the train station, and they are approached by a reporter. Now, this mountaineer group has clearly been through a lot. Um, They have injuries, very grim faces, and cremated remains uh, to bring back home. So, because the reporter prompts them, they tell their story. Her main protagonist, Ichima, says that it all began with a New Year's vacation. We were all going skiing. It was going to be great. And he was there with his girlfriend, Machiko, her older brother, Takeno, younger brother, Shinsuke, and Kaji. They're all going skiing, and Takeno and Kaji decide to go a little further and go to a friend's cabin again. While Ichima, Machiko, and Shinsuke head back to their cabin. As they arrive, a snowstorm is rolling in, so they get a little concerned, especially because every time they try to call Gen's cabin, there's no answer. During the snowstorm, a local woman named Chika arrives. Um, she is from a distant village, and she's clearly, like, not happy to be around city folk. She's only here to take refuge because the storm is so bad, but she clearly does not like outsiders. And she mentions to the innkeeper... Yeah, it's like a ski lodge that they're yeah, staying at. That um, there's going to be an avalanche. Uh, she, she just knows these things, and she's always correct. And in fact, we see the avalanche. Apparently, it's right near Gen's cabin. So Machiko... Shinsuke and Ichima are getting pretty worried. Finally, there's a phone call from the cabin. Machiko picks up and immediately regrets it. She hears some weird screaming growl, and she freaks out. Ichima picks it up from her, hears a gunshot, and a man yelling. And they're like, what the fuck is going on here? It's quite chilling. The next day... They head up to Gen's cabin um, with some police officers as well. And when they get there, they find quite a gruesome scene. Gen is dead, and Kaji is found a bit outside of the cabin, kind of mauled to death and frozen. The entire cabin is turned upside down, and they find footprints of the Yeti. Um, The subtitles called it the Abominable... Snowman? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say snowman, because abominable is really hard to say. (laughs) Um, They find snowman footprints and what looks to be like fur or hair caught on some like door frames. But Takeno is missing. So Mechiko is pretty worried, Um, same with Shinsuke. They do a further search of the area, but there's just no luck. The snow is too deep, the avalanche was too extensive. So they have to wait till the spring thaw. With the spring, Ijima, Machiko, Shinsuke, 
arrive with others, including a Dr. Koizumi, who is a big deal zoologist. He's interested because of the hair and everything that they found, but it's clear that like these guys are students of Koizumi, and they're all experienced mountaineers, so they're all looking for Takeno. Yeah, I think it's mentioned that they're like the University Mountaineering Club. Yeah. Yeah. They are also there with local guides to help continue the search through the mountain range. We also see a man named Oba and his crew who have heard and seen the, the snowman, and they are hoping to catch it, to put it in Oba's circus. Oba um, has his men following the students group to try to keep them from finding the snowman and, like, usurping their discovery. Yeah, which is is weird. It's weird. Because, like, like I get it in terms of needing some antagonists for the movie. But it's like, why? But, like, you know, okay, I get that they want the snowman for the carnival, right? But it doesn't seem to be... There's no motivation to want to stop the professor from finding it. Like, let the professor find it great, he'll do some research or whatever, and then take it hostage and take it back to the circus. Like, your goals aren't actually all that... Against each other. Right. But but the movie needs a bad guy. As our student group makes their way through the mountains, we also see that they are followed by some strange-looking men. Maybe, like, some, like, man-apes. Mountain men. Mountain men. What Ben looks like before he gets a haircut. <laughs> They're having no luck finding Takeno alive nor dead. Um, and so the professor's like, okay, I think we need to go into uh, this one valley, uh, Garen Valley. And the guides are like, nope, nope, <laughs> we're not going there. And they're like, why? Because no one ever returns. Okay, well, we we got to go. And they're like, nope, nope. We don't go any further than Borkel Pass. <laughs> <laughs> and then one night we see... The creature himself, the snowman. It's at the student camp. Everyone's falling asleep. Machiko is, you know, asleep in her tent. And the snowman must, like, smell her perfume or something because he comes <laughs> right up to her tent. And we see, like, his face full on. There's no, like, oh, let's try to hide it. No, let's see it. And it looks pretty dope. Uh, he thinks Machiko looks pretty dope. And he sticks his hand in the tent and, like, Strokes her face, and she wakes up screaming, reasonably so. So she screams, and the whole camp works themselves up, and they're like, oh, fuck. Okay. They go chasing after whatever this thing is. They don't really know what it is. And this is when Ijima chases the creature, and then slips and falls down a ravine. So Ijima has disappeared. They can't find any trace of him, because um, it, it's, like, nighttime. It's at this point that the guides are like, fuck, I'm out of here, and they leave the group completely. Now, Ichima, he's okay after that fall from the ravine, and he's wandering around, and he's trying to find his camp, and he sees some people around a campfire, and he goes, oh, it, that must be my group. Nope, it's Oba's group, and they surround him and beat him up. They're like, we know you've seen the creature, we can't let you live then. Uh, so he does put up a pretty good good uh, defense, but they end up like punching him out and then tossing him down another, another ravine. ravine. <laughs> Ijima awakes in a hut, and Chika, remember her? She's there, and he's 
she's trying to like feed him and nurse him back to health. She's brought him into her village and her people aren't happy about that because they don't like outsiders. Now this village is filled with like people, it seems like mainly men, and they all seem to be like those kind of mountain men, as been described in the context setting, that kind of like looking a little bit like more animalistic than human. Yeah, they, I, I want to talk a lot about this later, kind of digging into what's supposed to be going on here. But from what we can see, like there are some women in the group, it's mostly men. They have like very strong kind of brows with like some unibrows in the crowd. Some of them are missing like limbs. All of them look pretty bad. Like Chica seems to be the only person here who has like all of her like teeth and eyes and limbs and fingers and toes, you know, all in one piece. And everyone else looks like they've seen some shit. Looks a little off. And it's it's sort of unclear what's going on here. But they're definitely maybe just like super inbred, but but hard to say. Because her people are very upset about this, Chica is punished. She's sent to go deliver some, like, rabbits to the snowman, um, who the villagers call the Great Mountain Lord. While she's doing that, her people go and kidnap Ijima, tie him up, gag him, and lower him on a rope off of a cliff. Just, like, a series of, like... Mm -hmm. Worst situations for poor Ijima here. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like if you, if you you know, get your bounds undone, you're just going to fall to your death. But if you stay here, the, like, vultures are going to come eat you. Yeah, when Chica was like, hey, can I keep him? They did not I'll respond walk well. him every day. He's not going to walk at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Chica doesn't know where Ijima has been taken, and she's sulking. And Oba comes across her and she's like oh are you one of the students and they're like yeah we're one of the students some 40 year old students <laughs> and she's like oh well i i rescued one of your your guys and they're like oh great by the way do you know where the snowman is she's like no and they're like we'll take you to meet the other students if you tell us and she's like oh okay snowman's over there and they're like perfect <laughs> meanwhile the snowman is walking by with a deer carcass on his back. And he sees this rope hanging off of a cliff. <laughs> and so he puts down his deer carcass, pulls up the rope, basically rescuing Ijima from certain death, unties him, and just kind of like grunts at him, picks up his deer carcass, and walks to his cave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Ijima's like... Okay. <laughs> Maybe out of the fire now? Who knows? Now, we've seen by this point that the snowman has a little mini-law. Mm, yeah, has for sure. Has a little, little snow boy. While the snowman is walking back with his deer carcass, Oba heads to the cave and captures snow boy. They set up a trap so that when the snowman arrives, they are able to lure him into the trap using Snowboy's cries and catch the snowman in a net and, like, chloroform him. With snowman and snowboy captured, uh, Oba and his team start driving back. They're like, <laughs> full prize. Yeah. We're going to be Carl Denham rich. <laughs> then the snowman awakes and starts wrecking shit. Um... 
he breaks open the cage. Uh, the crew that's driving behind this main truck, like, freaks out and accidentally drives off a cliff. No explosions, though. The snowman reaches through and strangles the driver of Oba's truck and manages to get out and get Snowboy out and it seems like everything's going to be fine, except Oba has a gun. He's firing and shoots Snowboy. Snowboy is dead. Snowman is upset about this, and he throws Oba off a cliff. So Snowman takes Snowboy into the cave, into like his eternal resting place. And then the rage hits Snowman again, and he goes and wrecks the entire mountain village, just burns everything to the ground. The Grand Elder gets killed. He had also been shot by Oba, but apparently it's the fire that kills him, and the entire village has to be evacuated. Further in the rage, Snowman heads down to the students' camp. By this point, Ijima has managed to get back to his camp, and he's like, yeah, the snowman saved me. It was weird. Um, And they're kind of nursing him back to health. And then they hear the mad cries of the snowman. Um, So the entire camp rushes off, leaving a guy and Machiko behind, saying, like, don't leave this camp. We'll go off and find the creature. Dude does leave the camp, so Machiko is left alone. Right when the snowman arrives in a rage and he's like, ah, here's a chick to kidnap, and he takes her off. I think the key thing to note here is that the snowman, you know, knows Machiko's at this camp. He saw her there before. And we haven't seen any snowman outside of him and Snowboy. And Snowboy's now dead. So, you know, he needs a new Snowboy. And, and Machiko's going to give it to him. Yeah, yeah, that's very clearly the... Implication. Yes, yeah. It's that sort of chain of logic is, is made, I think, very clear in the movie without anyone... Saying it. Yeah. So, with Machiko under his arm, he heads back to his cave. Ijima and everyone comes back and they're like, shit, Machiko's gone. So they head up to the burned village. And they find Chika there. And she's the only one left. She says that the Grand is dead, everyone else evacuated, it's just me. And they're like, hey, we gotta find Snowman. Can you take us to him? Chika leads them to the cave. They go through the cave, finding how the all of the other snowmen had died because of eating a poisonous mushroom. And the only reason that our main boy snowman and his boy snow boy survived is because they didn't eat this mushroom. They also find the eternal resting place of Snowboy and some other skeletons, and they're like, oh shit, so Snowboy's dead. Okay. Uh, who killed him? Oh, I guess Oba for his circus. Everything's starting to be connected. Further into the cave, they find Takeno's body, his remains, and they're like, oh shit, there he is. Shinsuke's like bawling his eyes by now, because like, his oldest brother is dead, his older sister is missing, like, his whole life has been ruined by this one snowman. They do find Takeno's notes. I guess he had, like, enough life left to write some scribbles. And uh, he tells the story of how he and Kaji uh, thought they were just lucky enough to get to Gen's cabin. They saw the snowman, so they tried to follow him. The avalanche hit. They got taken away. And Takeno woke up in this cave um, because the snowman was trying to, like, be friends with him and, like, feed him and nurse him back to health. But Takeno was like, uh, I'm too weak to eat. I think this is where I'm going to die. 
and, and he died. Then they see the snowman with Machiko's uh, unconscious body in his arms. They follow him, and they get to the edge of a sulfur pit akin to the Tartarus pits that uh, Rajal Ghul dips into. And it's unclear what what Snowman's plan is at this point, but they figure, okay, the best way to get up there is Chica's going to go up there and separate Machiko and Snowman. It doesn't quite go that way. Someone fires a gun, and Machiko is okay. She's on the ground, but the Snowman's shot, and he falls, pulling Chica with him down into the sulfur pit. And they're dead. And Machiko... Luckily is alive and conscious. Flash forward to um, them at the train station. They're like, that's our story. And the reporter's like, damn, that's a story. <laughs> and then they continue heading home. The end. So before I started giving the plot summary, I said that it seems like you like this movie more than I did. So why don't you start off with talking about, like, what it was that you really liked and why you think this is, like, a really great movie. Well, there's a lot of things I liked about this movie. Possibly one of them is how much the movie leaves ambiguous and how much you can kind of, like, think about and and try to, like, read between the lines of after watching it. I feel like I'm going to be thinking about this movie for a long time. You mentioned how, like, all of the plot beats are familiar, and that's very true right? Like the ape man that goes for the girl, the, you know, isolated villagers out in the middle of nowhere, the like unscrupulous businessmen trying to capture the creature. We've seen all of these things before, but it's always interesting to see familiar story beats told by different people, different people, especially in a different cultural context. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I noticed about this movie was a feeling of just how serious the filmmakers were taking it. Like, it didn't have the same flippancy as, like, I don't know, like a monogram movie shot on a backlot. Yeah, or even, like, the way that the creature is treated in the Ed Wood movie that we watched. Exactly. There's a somberness to this that feels really of a piece with Godzilla. It's not as dark. No. Because, like, everything here is happening on a much smaller scale, for yeah. one thing. But for that scale, I think it is... I think it is an effective horror movie because it really delivers on a sense of suspense in a lot of scenes. It really delivers on some good chills here and there. And it really delivers on some grisliness in the violence that's occurring. Um, like your, your money may vary on how effective some of the special effects in this movie are, um, even correcting for time and place, but the movie certainly never shies away from the violence. Like snowman chokes a guy out. We're going to see him choke a guy out. Snowman throws a guy off a cliff. We're going to see him throw a guy off a cliff. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think Honda builds a very effective atmosphere here that, you know, takes us through horror and into tragedy by the end of the movie. Like a lot of these kinds of movies, 
the snowman is ultimately sympathetic. And I think, you know, the big question of the movie is about, like, you know, it's one of those who is the real monster kind of movies. Yeah, so the title of the movie is Jujin Yuki Otoko. Mm -hmm. And you said that that translates to Beast Man Snowman. Right. And I feel like that's kind of being like Beast Man Snowman. Like, Mm. Oba's the beast. Right. Snowman's the snowman. Yeah, certainly we have Oba, who is one of the movie's weaker elements, because he's very, um... One note. He's very mustache twirly. He's yeah. like, ah, ha, ha, I'll be rich. Murder and money, ha, 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 kind of guy. But there's also the villagers, and we have to think about, like, okay, what's going on with the villagers? Because it's never yeah. really explained. They refer to the snowman as the master, and the mountain lord. And it's not quite the same kind of thing as what's going on in King Kong with, like, worshipping the monster as a god. That's not quite the sense you get watching this movie. It felt more akin, not act, like not exactly, mm-hmm. but more akin to the beastmen on the island of Dr. Moreau mm-hmm. and the way that the general beastmen populace relate to the speaker, mm-hmm. Bella Lugosi's character. And there's a lot of ambiguity going on here with the villagers. Um, are they just inbred because they live out in the middle of nowhere and have no contact with outsiders and that's such like a big rule, so they're clearly only breeding with each other and that's why they all look real troubled? Um, you know, and if they're just inbred, like, why does Chica look so pure? Yeah. And, like, what's going on between them and the snowman? And, like, you know, what's going on here? Ultimately, the thing about the villagers is that they are so isolationist. Like, they, you know, something you had to kind of gloss over in the plot summary. But, like, when Chica brings in Ijima and they're like, nope, and, you know, leave him hanging. The Grand Elder, uh, like, punishes Chica. And we see him, like beating her with a stick. Yeah. Like, on screen. And there's almost, like, an impression that we're supposed to get that, like, the snowman is more human than the inbred villagers. The villagers are very brutal. Yeah, which, like, yikes, if true. Um, You can see totally why the Buraku Liberation League had a problem with this movie. I don't think... These people are supposed to be Baraku. I, here's the thing. So, like, in the research that I did, Baraku, with the direct meaning of village or hamlet Mm -hmm. or whatever, is used to describe, hey, the little village. You know, like, Okotoks, south of Calgary. Right. Baraku. But... It's there's always like a secondary word to describe it. Even in the case of like, oh, that used to be a Barakuman ghetto. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget the word for it, but it has like a particular like Baraku dash other word. Sure. Um, or that's like a vacation little hamlet Baraku dash vacation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm butchering yeah. the actual like way that grammar would work with Japanese, but. It's not just that, like, 
Barack you in and of itself is a bad word. From my perspective, it does appear that this is just like, yeah, we're just calling this a village. But the stereotypes are still there, so I'm still with you. If the Baraku Liberation League had a problem with this, they are probably seeing something that I am not. Yeah, like... And I will take their word for it. There's nothing in the movie that says, like, these are... Barakumen. Right. There's nothing like, these guys aren't, like, leather workers or tanners or... I mean, uh, there are a lot of furs. Sure. So they probably do do tanning. Sure. And things like But, like, there's nothing here that suggests that they're part of that system. These guys seem to be completely divorced from civilization, period. The way that they're portrayed as, you know, inbred, subhuman assholes... <laughs> I can certainly see why someone would have some problems with this. So, you know, there's a big yikes there, but I think what the movie's trying to do is talk about, like, the way that the snowman is a more humane character than some of the humans yeah. in the movie. You know, the snowman rescues Ijima. The snowman is generally, like, a good dude until they kill his kid, and then he goes out on this rage. He captures Machiko, but, like, even that's understandable from, you know, he's the last of his kind kind of point of view. And even in, like, the way that the professor tries to explain why Snowman would rescue Takeno is he was lonely and wanted a friend. Yeah. The Takeno's really interesting because, yeah, the big twist there is we find out that the snowman didn't kill Takeno, the snowman rescued Takeno from the avalanche. Regardless, the sense that you get is that, like, this is just a creature defending itself and trying to look out for its own interests. Um, it's smarter than even, like, the creature from the Black Lagoon, I would argue. Why would you say smarter than the creature? Just from, like, things like the way that it, like, is carrying the deer home. Over his shoulders? And then, like, spots Ijima and, like, pulls the rope up and, like, unties the rope and, like, leaves him there and then keeps going. Like, he has a lot more sense of agency and conscious thought rather than a sense of just acting on instinct. Like, even when the creature from the Black Lagoon, when Gilman is doing intelligent things, it's still always in... A simplistic goal. Yes, it's always in service to, like, an instinctual drive, right? Like, Gilman need to eat, Gilman need to kill, Gilman need to fuck. Whereas the snowman, like, makes conscious decisions. Sure. I think even more than the Gilman, uh, this movie renders the subtext of the standard monster-carries-off-lady story into very explicit text. Yes. But why does he go after Machiko instead of Chica? So, presumably, within the context of what we're seeing in the movie, it's that he's seen Machiko, you know, at the camp already and knows she's there. Um, what's interesting about the snowman and the villagers is even though the villagers know the snowman's there and they refer to him as the master and the, the mountain lord and all these things... The only interaction they actually have with him in the whole movie is when he shows up to fuck up their village. Well, no, Chica gives him the rabbits. Right, but 
but it's not direct. She like has a specific call and then leaves the babbits by the cave entrance. Mm-hmm. And the villagers are saying something along the lines of like, we need to make sure he's happy so we can hunt during the winter. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really unclear what the relation is here. Like, do they keep him at bay because they're afraid he's going to eat them otherwise? Or like, what's going on? And we know that the rest of the snowmen have died because they all ate a mushroom. Which, on the one hand, I really like that this movie actually, like, gives an explanation for why the monster's the last of his kind. Like, we never get that in, like, Creature from the Black Lagoon. It's just like, oh yeah, he's just here somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I appreciate that explanation. On the other hand, the idea that, like, all these snowmen just, like, kept eating this mushroom that was killing them until they all died like a bunch of lemmings kind of strains a bit of credulity. Like, there's a reason why that doesn't happen in nature, especially if these things are so smart. Yeah. But whatever. It's it's fine. I think the fact that they even thought of needing to explain it shows the level of, like, care that went into the movie. But there's definitely a question of, is the snowman, are the snowmen interbreeding with the villagers? I would say no given the level of distance that we see between their interactions. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of engagement. The only thing that makes me think otherwise is, you know, we know that the snowman, when time comes and Snowboy's dead and something needs to be done to carry on the line, the snowman goes and gets Machiko and is going to bone down with her. Clearly, that's the idea. So, like... The snowman's already making that leap, and there's just something weird about the way that Chica is Avoided. totally normal mm. in the village compared to everyone else. Yeah. Like, and the fact is that, like, when we first meet Chica at the start of the movie, she's super standoffish, right, to all the others when she's staying at the lodge. But later in the movie, after getting Ijima her motivation has changed like she wants to go outside. She wants the fancy ring that Oba gives her. She wants to meet all the other students. She's super into Ijima, like, to Mm -hmm. the point where she clearly, like, has a crush on him. And it's like as if they were going to offer her up to the snowman as a bride. Okay. And I think, like, I think somehow she was, like, a prize, and, and that's why they have her give, like, the rabbits to him? No, that was just to get her out of the village so they could tie Ijima and throw him off a cliff. I think that that's why, like, she's the pristine one. And I think that's why she's now suddenly changed her motivation and is trying to, like, get out of the village and get to, like, civilization and, like, wants to do outsider things. You know, and why she's suddenly, like, infatuated with Ijima, which she wasn't at the cabin when she first saw him. I don't know. It's, it's, there's an ambiguity here that the movie leaves, and, and maybe I'm way off base, but the truth is that Chica and Machiko both form the same corner of a love triangle with Ijima and the snowman. And it is a little weird, because it does feel like an odd kind of repetitiveness in terms of the character, especially because Machiko doesn't really get a heck of a lot to do in the movie. Yeah, she's only there to be kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Chika gets much more agency because she rescues Ichima. She, like, is trying to help the village elder. Um, she's facing off and is torn between outsider and village mm-hmm. obligations, um, all these things. Um, and her death, you know, adds to the tragic nature of the ending, right? Because it's not just the snowman who dies. It's her who gets pulled down, too. Yeah. The village is, like, blaming all of this trouble on her, which is interesting. Yeah. Because she brought Ijima, but, like, all of this would have happened regardless, so it feels to me like it's more than just because she happened to bring this guy here. It feels like she's blamed for a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, she told Oba where the creature was, but, like, it does feel really harsh, the way that they treat her. The ending, like, is very tragic, and it hangs very heavy, and I feel like an opportunity was lost in the final scene with the reporter to give something that would sum it up in a way that would clarify the film's, like, meaning and message. You wanted a line like what the dude has at the end of Godzilla? Yeah, just, like, because it's it's a little ambiguous what this movie's trying to say. Yeah what the significance of these events are. And, you know, the reporter's there and he says, Wakarimashita, he says, I understand, after hearing their story. And I kind of don't. Like, I I understand the plot, obviously. I don't need a, like, the ending of Half Human Explained, like, article (laughs) for me. I mean, like, I don't understand, like, what ultimately we're supposed to be taking away from this. Because while it's a story we've seen many, many times, it feels like it's trying to say something and it's not, you know, Twas Beauty Killed the Beast. Yeah, it's definitely not that. I, so I think you're finding a lot of, like, interest and, like, something to engage with with the ambiguity. For me, the ambiguity is making me go, like, okay. Right. Like, it's, like, okay, for one thing, like, yes, make it more clear But the ending felt like it was overly explaining things. Mm. And by that I mean, like, like, I agree, like, cool, we got to learn, like, why Snowman's the last of his kind. But then the characters have to find Snowboy and go like, oh, Snowboy's dead. Oh, who killed him? Oh, Oba. And, like, kind of go over things that we as the audience already know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just kind of felt bored during that part. The movie definitely has pacing problems. Yeah, it needed a lot more streamlining. Um, personally, I would, like, get rid of Oba completely, but mm-hmm. replace him with, like, still as Oba, but pluck him out of, like, the circus, whatever, and put him in with, like, the guide group who wants to go hunting. Like a Clayton from Tarzan kind of deal. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, there are three sets of characters in this movie. The villagers the students, and Oba's group. And they are way too separate. Yeah. To the point where when we need story stuff to be happening with one of them, it we feels... We just completely forget about one of the others. Exactly. Like, when um, Like, who Ijima... cares how he, Ijima gets back to his camp? Right. Like, Ijima gets rescued by the snowman. And then I swear it's like 20 minutes before we see him again back at his camp because we're doing the entire Oba captures the creature and then gets got storyline in that time even something as simple as like at one point enough of the two groups like oba's group and the students group get got by a landslide or something that they need to like join up together 
for survival's purposes or something. But keeping two completely separate groups going through the forest looking for the snowman, like, really bogs the plot down a lot. There's also a lot of people in this movie. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, like, maybe head names, but I didn't catch it. In both expeditions, like Oba's group, students' group, a lot of extraneous villagers mm-hmm. that, like, it, having a lot of villagers, okay, cool, whatever, makes sense. But the expeditions both have, like, 10 to 15 guys. Yeah, like, people and, keep dying and it doesn't feel like they're losing numbers. Yeah, we should be whittling down, but it just feels like more, <laughs> strike one down, two pop up. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of extraneous characters here, and I I do completely agree with you that, like, you obviously needed the character who was going to be like, I'll take it prisoner for money or whatever, but absolutely he should have been a guide in the one group, you know, and maybe had, maybe like all the guides are Oba's group, where it's like, they're signing on as guides with this famous zoologist who's going to go on this expedition, but really their plan is like, you know, at the key moment, we'll fucking bonk him on the head and throw him down a ravine and capture the creature and get back to civilization. Like, definitely the plot needed some of that streamlining, for sure. I think, like, the movie's an hour and a half, and there's two ways of looking at it. I think there's a charitable way, which is to say, they really pack a lot of story into an hour and a half. Like, compared to Hollywood Poverty Row movie that's an hour and a half, like, a lot happens. We go to a lot of places. We learn a lot of information. There's a lot of story and things and events. The other less charitable way of looking at that is that it's an hour and a half that feels like it's, like, two and a half. Yes, I was definitely, like, looking at the clock. Um, It's not as bad of pacing as, say, The Flying Serpent with Quetzalcoatl. Mm -hmm. But, like, we retread a lot of the same ground. Right, because different sets of characters have to learn the same things. Yeah. I will say that the suit was impressive. Mm-hmm. It, I, I was... I found myself comparing it to Crash Corrigan's suit. Okay. Which was, like, one of the better ape suits. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously it's not the same because Ohashi isn't trying to do an ape. He's trying to do a snowman yeah um so his movements are the same and the suit isn't the same but i would say that like you know it was really well done the face design was really cool yeah it i was surprised at how close it looked to the only other uh yeti snowman face that comes to mind which is harry and the hendersons oh (laughs) i think it's yeah it's a really effective design with a face that really effectively hits that, like, bullseye of, you know, it needs to look human enough that we can empathize with it, but it needs to look apish enough to, you know, not just look like a human, right? Yeah. Um, The thing that really struck me the most about how good it looked is how good it looks in comparison to how bad... The King Kong suit is in King Kong vs. Yes. Godzilla, which was made seven years after this. Absolutely. Like, the King Kong suit in that movie is one of maybe the worst Toho monster suits so of, like, the whole canon. Like, I, I don't know what they were drinking. They were having too much sake. Yeah, it's... You know? 
Um, but, like, even just thinking about, like... So, part of the reason why I was also thinking Crash Corrigan is Crash is really good when he's being an ape and he's, like, running to the camera. Mm-hmm. You know, you see through some of the seams when he is doing more action things, like throwing people around and, and doing things. You don't have that loss of illusion when Snowman's doing things. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, I think it was really well done. The way he's, like, carrying people around and throwing people. And there's a couple times where I'm like, is he actually, like, carrying Machiko like that? Like, effortlessly? Like, it, it was that well done that... um it was very effective. Yeah, some of the special effects you can sort of see the seams, but they're definitely trying to do a lot of things here. And I think a lot of efforts being put into this movie. I think I think the difference that we're coming at it from is like I'm seeing ambiguities and you're seeing like plot holes or like, you know, subpar writing or or you know what I mean? Like I do agree that like the the worst part of this movie is the animal trader subplot because that's the parts of the movie that feel the most like a poverty row beat movie the other stuff with the students and the village and the snowman honda brings so much of his trademark sense of like tragedy to the story that it really feels like the movie's doing something more even though it's telling a story we've seen a bunch of times before the cinematography looks like it must be gorgeous in some shots if we could see it better. Yeah, I wish we could have seen like a restored version because this VHS, you know, it it's a VHS mm. of a an old black and white movie. So when we're like moving through, for lack of a better word, the jungle during like the spring, mm-hmm. um, it's a little hard to tell details like the foliage versus someone's face. Right. Um, but you know that you know that they must be there. Yeah. I would love to see some of this clearer, especially the ending showdown of the snowman by the sulfur pit. Because some of the lighting there, like when he's holding Chica and she's in his arms and she's like stabbing him with her knife and they're struggling by like the, the edge there, like those shots look like they they probably look gorgeous if you were seeing like them clearly. The picture and the music often combine to really create some powerful moments. This is true. Um, I think, you know, as I said earlier, it does suspense and atmosphere really well. It doesn't shy away from unpleasantness. Um, I think if Creature from the Black Lagoon is horror, this is definitely horror as well. Even if there's stuff that doesn't work, and even if the pacing's a little subpar, there are moments in this movie that have a lot of power to them that I think I'll be thinking about for a long time. And it's, it is, I agree with you. It's a shame that we couldn't see like a restored version. Like I think even if this movie must be sealed away in Japan, it would be really incredible to see a restored version made for the international market one day. Well, if we're going to move on to ranking at this point, I do have to say I wasn't, sure whether this counted as horror. Yeah, I definitely thought we might have a discussion about it. So I wanted to just quickly recap the previous Japanese movies we've watched. So, 1954, we saw Gojira by Ashiro Honda. 
1949, we saw Yasuo Kaiden, which we ultimately determined was not horror. While it is a ghost movie, um, it's not interested in making it a horror movie. It's more of a dramatic thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 1926, Kabuta Ejipeji, definitely a horror movie, very much inspired by like a German expressionist vibe, um, set in a mental asylum. So like, very set in its genre of horror. Gojira straddles the line a little bit. I do think it falls more into horror, but I think you could make the argument of it being more of a tragic drama or um, just a straight-up monster movie. Yeah, and as we as we say in that episode, it's it's basically inventing its own genre. Yeah. Jujin Yuki Otoko, definitely a monster movie. Yes. But I wasn't sure if it counted as horror because I was like, well... What am I supposed to be scared of here? See, I think there's plenty of scenes in the movie that are scary. Um, the opening bit when they're trapped in the lodge during the avalanche yeah. is a really good example of a great horror sequence. I think the first sequence of the snowman at the camp is really good and well done for the same reason. Great use of light and shadow and sound effects, too. The way that the snowman like creeps into the camp and you see its shadow while we're hearing Ijima like whistle off screen as he's like on guard duty or whatever. Um, I think the villagers are really scary. I think that when the creature's rampaging, it's very scary. I think that what we're supposed to be afraid of changes through the movie which and is I, probably what is causing a bit of that ambiguity as well. Yeah, because certainly our sympathies move to the creature by the end of the movie, right? Um, but it's not an adventure movie. No. Because, like, there's never a sense, you know, even though we're doing this expedition, like, I would say that, you know, King Kong is a monster movie and an adventure movie. I don't think this is an adventure movie because the expedition isn't about going into the unknown for fame and glory. It's about, like, finding this dead guy. And solving a mystery. And ultimately the answer is something we wish we hadn't found. And I think the movie's a horror movie because of the horror of the situation. Like the horror of these villagers, of this uh, creature, and what happens to these people due to this unfortunate like series of events. And like I said earlier, I think if Creature from the Black Lagoon counts, this counts. Because I think... In broad strokes, they're the same damn movie. Um, <laughs> just this movie is more complicated. I think Creature definitely shows that streamlining that you wanted out of this film. Well, that's how he moves through the water. Right. Fair enough. So um, I didn't come up with a range because I wasn't sure how I felt about this movie. But I think you made a good case for it to be horror. So what is your range? So we're probably going to need to adjust this as it turned out that you know you weren't sure if it was even horror didn't enjoy it as much as me so i'm totally willing to compromise here but i decided to start looking by going and finding creature from the black lagoon okay looking at where creature was on the list because i wasn't sure i was like i really liked some stuff in this film better than in creature i think this film is smarter than Creature, for instance. I think the people who wrote and made this movie are smarter. But 
Creature from the Black Lagoon, in addition to the streamlining, also just has such beautiful, like, underwater cinematography and, like, craft going into it. Not that there wasn't a lot of good craft going in here, but also just looking around it on the list, the movies it's keeping company with are definitely better. Like, looking immediately below it, it's like, okay, Night of the Hunter, Mad Love, Walking Dead, Phantom of the Opera, Cat in the Canary, okay. Yeah. So I started traveling down. Well, even Karuta Jupeji is at 26, right above Creature from the Black Lagoon. So, yeah, I'm with you about looking a little further down. And so where I found a section that felt where the movies elicited a feeling closer to the feeling I had for this movie was... Um, around 3637 where we've got the white reindeer and house of wax i i i don't know what it was but something about this movie also felt similar to how i felt watching the white reindeer okay i guess maybe that sense of being so far outside of civilization and i don't know just a more complex morality than a lot of these movies tend to have i'm not sure and then below White Ranger, there's House of Wax. And House of Wax is definitely more simplistic. Like, that's not to say it's worse or better, but House of Wax is a movie that, like, is not interested in being vague about anything. Um, <laughs> it's very, how should you say it, in your face. Yes. So, I made 36 my ceiling. Okay. I figured White Ranger's probably better than this, ultimately, because White Ranger doesn't have anything about it that goes into, like, weird Poverty Row B-movie territory. Looking below that, you know, I'm looking for, okay, what is this definitely better than? And I hit The Leopard Man at number 42, which is a Luton movie, but definitely one of the lesser Luton movies. It's a little weak, ultimately, and it doesn't quite pull off what it's trying to do. Below that is Man Who Changed His Mind, uh, the Spencer Tracy, Jekyll and Hyde, Son of Dracula. Above the Leopard Man is The Man Without a Face, which really impressed us. So I made my floor 42. Okay. I figured this is better than The Leopard Man. It might not be as good as Man Without a Face. So that was my range, 37 to 42. But I'm willing to go lower, given that like you had a very different takeaway from this movie than me. So, I'll be honest, even your floor feels a little too high for me. Mm -hmm. Because I think of, say, Son of Dracula at 45, Freaks, even the Devil Commands. They all feel like, like I know what they're trying to do. Mm. I know what they're trying to say. Whereas Jujin, Yuki, Otoko, I'm, I'm a little more lost. Freaks is an interesting comparison point, given that I think it also fits into that category of, like, its band nature builds it up a lot more than what it turns out to be. I think Freaks, especially with the ending, because it's the ending, it's what you remember, whereas a lot of the horror that's in Jujin Yuki Otoko that was powerful for me was more in the beginning. <sighs> I'm not going to go below Revenge of the Creature at 54. I think if yeah. you gave me a choice, I would watch this movie again over Revenge of the Creature in a heartbeat. This yeah. movie doesn't do a great job of summing up what it's supposed to be. But I think watching it, the idea that, you know, ultimately the snowman was the most humane of all the characters comes through, even if they missed the opportunity to have the professor say it at the end. 
Yeah, I, I was going to offer you a range of um, 47, the Devil Commands, down to Cult of the Cobra, 51. Okay. I would consider Jujin Yuki Otoko better than Cult of the Cobra. Well, no, Cult of the Cobra had some like really neat things that you were noting about like masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, see, that kind of stuff, like... I, I can see in the movie, it's not really d- talking about it or doing anything with it, but it's there and it's engaging me. Whereas in Chijin Yuki Otoko, there's nothing like that that's engaging me. So I'm finding this very, very difficult. But what do you think about this kind of range? Even like from Revenge of the Creature 54 up to Devil Commands 47. Well, so what about, since you find Cult of the Cobra more engaging... What about um, below Cult of the Cobra, but above The Amazing Mr. X, which has a lot of cool cinematography and a lot of good, like, spooks and scares, but, like, ultimately also isn't really about anything. Yeah, I think that's a great compromise there. Um, Yeah, let's do that. Okay. I am glad that we procured this gray market copy of the movie to watch the Japanese original, because... I think if we were watching Half Human, if it had made it on the list, it would have been down in the snow creature territory. I think it would be above the snow creature, but yes, it would definitely be on the lower end of the list. Yeah. So entering the list then at the new number 52 is Jujin Yuki Otoko from 1955, directed by Ishiro Honda. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out directly over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Fleet us! No. Fleet us! No. No? No. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are available if you subscribe to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can do so by leaving a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice. Leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts helps the algorithm suggest the show to other people, and thus is one of the more helpful things you can do for us for free. Or, if you don't want to mess around with Apple algorithms, you can just tell a friend about the show. Uh, share the show over social media. Let people know that we are a great background for washing dishes and cleaning the house and working out as we all remain completely quarantined and not going anywhere for any kind of holidays that might be coming up because we're all responsible people. Finally, if you have the means, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can support the show by becoming a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. The money we get from Patreon helps us pay our hosting fees and helps, um, you know, with carving out the time to do the research that it takes to make the show. If you subscribe at higher dollar values, you get access to exclusive bonus content, and we're getting close to hitting our first Patreon goal of $150 a month 
And when we hit that goal, we're going to do an extra fifth episode every month on horror-adjacent movies. So that could be other Japanese uh, monster movies, um, like Godzilla Raids Again. Or it could be other abominable snowman movies that aren't necessarily horror, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate it. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week we are back over to the United States, and we're also back in time a little bit to catch a movie that I missed. Oh. Uh, we are going to be watching The Monster from the Ocean Floor, which is a cheap American B-movie, but it has some significance as the first film produced by legendary B-movie maker Roger Corman. Wow, cool. Yeah, so I'm really excited to see it and to talk about it and to introduce Roger Corman into the saga of Scream Scene. (laughs) Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.